Greetings, good morning. We are in the Gospel of Luke, as Rob just read. The end of chapter 13, Jesus, or the midst of chapter 13, Jesus is telling the Jews that you need to repent. Repent or you will die. And the same message goes out to everyone today. Repent of your sins or you will die eternally. We're all going to die physically. But for the Christian whose sins have been forgiven him through faith in Jesus Christ, the death of the body is a release from a life of death into eternal life. Jesus has told the Pharisees, he's told the Jews who think that they are God's chosen people, and they are. God did choose the Jews through Abraham, and he did give his covenant, his promises to this people. But the only ones that will be able to enjoy the blessings that God has are those of faith, those who actually believe God, those whose works are in keeping with their faith, as was their patriarch, Abraham, who believed God. In spite of all the evidence against it, God told a 99-year-old man, you are going to have a baby with your 90-year-old wife. And Abraham said, okay, I believe you, God. And God credited that to him as righteousness because he believed him. That's impossible, Lord. There's no way. Abraham knew that, but he knew that God said it would happen, and so he said, okay, that's faith. That's how we're all saved. Old Testament, New Testament, we are saved by faith. We're not saved because we're born of the Jewish race. We're not saved because our parents had us baptized when we were children. We're not saved because we know there's a God and that he has a son named Jesus. We're not saved because we were baptized as adults. We're not saved because we give 10%. We are saved when we have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. The people that Jesus is talking to did not, and yet they were descendants of Abraham, hence they were Jews. Jesus tells them that it's difficult. Verse 24, chapter 13, verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Strive. He doesn't tell the Jews, don't worry, you're in. Everybody else is going to be difficult. But for you, you're in. He doesn't say that. Strive. Work hard. That's what the word means. Agonizomai. Through agony and pain, strive to get through the narrow door. He told them earlier, take up your cross and follow me daily. Deny yourselves and take up your cross. In chapter 13, verses 3 and verses 5, he tells them, repent of your sins. That's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to inherit the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God, what we call heaven, takes work. Now, wait a minute. Aren't we a reformed church? Don't we believe that it's faith that saves us? It is. Faith alone saves us. But faith that is alone is not true saving faith. The devil believes, the demons believe, they bow before Jesus and say, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. They're not saved. Just to know who Jesus is, is not salvation. One must have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says at the end of verse 30, of the end of of chapter 13, verse 34, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which is metonymy for all of you Jews living in the, in the chosen city of God where you have to come to worship. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together, just as the, a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
So we see Jesus talking to these Jews, telling them, I've held out my hands to you. You won't listen. You won't get it. You're too entrenched in your own selves. You think you have the answer. You think that because you're Jews, by simple virtue of being Abraham's offspring, you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus will use four different examples here, three different examples here in chapter 14. Even though Rob only read through verse 6, I'm going through verse 24. So buckle your seatbelt. You're thinking, how's he going to do that? I'm not. It's going to take two hours. (laughs) Nope. There was a moan over here, a groan over here. Would it be that bad? Okay, good. All right. Yeah, I I will get through in record time. So the first episode is verses 1 through 6, and we've seen this happen before. It happened when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees. One of the leaders of the Pharisees, this is going to be, uh, remember, the Pharisees are a conservative group of very righteous people. Their actions are very righteous. They're extremely moral. They're people that make society great in the sense that they are moral people. They are, uh, unfortunately, hypocrites. But a leader of the Pharisees is going to be a very important person. He's never named. By the way, this is the third occasion where Jesus, in Luke's gospel, where Jesus eats with a Pharisee. And it's the fourth time that Jesus is going to do what he does on the Sabbath. Uh, Jesus loves to just... Stick that needle in harder on the Sabbath. They're they're setting up. So he goes into the house of one of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread. It's going to be a meal, obviously. uh, They were watching him closely. Now they're watching him closely because they're setting him up. They've done this on other occasions. They brought somebody in to trap Jesus. Here they're bringing in a man. It says in verse 2, and there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. If you read the passage beforehand, you had to look up what dropsy was, didn't you? Dropsy is a condition whereby you retain water. It is more of a symptom of uh, congestive heart failure, kidney failure, or even liver failure. Uh, in fact, the Greek word is hydropikos, hydro meaning water, retaining water. It means you're in bad health, and it means you're going to die. If untreated, you will die. Sometimes it occurs from malnutrition. Um, but most often it is heart failure, liver failure, kidney failure. And there's this man there. Now, at this meal of Pharisees, why invite a man with dropsy? Pharisees don't eat with people that, are, that, that have dropsy. In fact, this condition, if you go back to Numbers chapter 5, might be a condition, it looks like in those days, as someone who has committed a heinous sexual sin. Why invite this guy? Only for one reason, to set him up. He's not part of the Pharisaical crowd. But they're going to bring Jesus to lunch and bring this guy together. In fact, the whole context revolves around a table. Now, you know what it's like when you get together with people at a table. Everyone's on their best behavior. Mind your P's and Q's, right? Don't say anything you don't need to say. I've had more than once my wife's leg kicking me under the table. Don't talk anymore. You are embarrassing me. (laughs) Men, anyone else been in that position? If Jesus had a wife, and he didn't, but she would have been... She, she would have been going, let's go, we're leaving. If he, had a, if he would have had some sort of a life coach at this point, he would have said, it's time to go. No. Jesus stays at it. The whole thing happens around a table. So they're eating. Man with dropsy comes in. Uh, verse 3, and Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees. Lawyers would be the scribes and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? At this point, the, the Pharisees are going, yes, he's bit. The guy with dropsy has gotten his attention And he's going to fall into our trap because it's the Sabbath day. Mind you, on the Sabbath day, as we've seen in other contexts, is that you don't do any work on the Sabbath day. You can't do, you can't even scooch. 
your chair across the... Is that okay to say scooch? Scooch your chair. If you scooch your chair across the floor, in those days you didn't have tile flooring, dirt floor, it creates a trench in, in the dirt. You know what that's like. Just a little dirt. That's called plowing. That's what the Pharisees had set the law up to be. You can't scoot your chair across. You can only go so many steps. Now, does the Old Testament teach this? It does not. God simply said, take a day off. Honor me. I give you six days to work. I'm giving this to you to honor me. Rest. That's all the Old Testament says, the law. The Pharisees have added to this. All their legalisms, they've added to this. And he asked them, is it... Is it uh, said, okay, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. In other words, the answer would have been very complicated. Well, Jesus, Moses didn't say we couldn't do it, but in our own man-made law, no, you can't heal on the Sabbath. It's like somebody sat down one day and a, a rabbi put together and they put all these strange things together saying what you could and could not do, and one of which is, oh yeah, don't heal. But they don't even write that. That's not even there. That you don't even have a, that's not going to be a problem in normal society. Don't let that healer come over here on the Sabbath day. He might make everybody well. Wouldn't that be terrible? So it's not even part of their own codified man-made law, but they keep silent because that's what you do when you have no answer. And Jesus said, or Luke says, and Jesus took a hold of him and healed him and sent him away. The man with dropsy doesn't come and say, Jesus, you're the only one that can heal me. He doesn't stretch his arm out in faith as others have done. He was a set-up man. They brought him there. Jesus bit, hook, line, sinker, healed the guy, and sent him on his way. That means the guy probably was, didn't belong there in the first place, being sent away, wasn't part of the Pharisees' crowd. They just set him up and probably wanted to go home and tell his, his wife anyway, look at me, honey. And, and that, that's one of those guys that if his, we don't see that he was saved by faith that day. Jesus saved him as an example. He saved him physically. We would assume that he went home and was saved through faith, that the Messiah... Uh, healed him, and that's going to be a great story to get with, you know. Hey, how'd it go when we get to heaven? What happened when you knocked on the door at your house when you, when you came in? What'd your wife think? I mean, if you've got congestive heart failure, and you look like somebody with dropsy, you're retaining fluid. I mean, some of you ladies that have had babies, you know what it's like to retain fluid. It's not a comfortable experience. My wife and I, the night before she delivered our first child, we, we sat on the bed and we looked at her elephantitis ankles. It was kind of funny, all that water in there. I said, where's your ankles? You know, it's not, not fun. She didn't enjoy it. No one would. And now he's healed. His internal organs are healed. Just like that. Jesus, he healed him. He's done. I love that. And in the story, unfortunately, it's just kind of, we go over it because that's not the point. But this is what Jesus does. Send him away. Apparently no one's saying anything. In verse 5, he said to them, Which of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. Once again, these people have, have nothing to say. I think it's interesting. I don't know if it has anything to do with it, that dropsy is a, is a condition where you retain water. And Jesus speaks of an ox or, or, a, or your son if they fell into a well, which would be water. People did fall into, wa- into wells in those days, a son. He's essentially saying, guys, look, if, you're, if your son fell into a well, deep down into the ground, would you look around and say, well, it's the Sabbath, we can't help. Can't do anything, he's just going to have to die down there, or tread water for another 24 hours. Or my ox has fallen down in there. An ox, imagine an ox falling down into a well. You're going to need another ox to pull that animal out. Perfectly legitimate. 
And Jesus is simply saying, how about this man created in the image of God who's suffering as he is? Why can't I heal him on the Sabbath day? Well, they have no answer for it. Don't you wish that you could make arguments and people just have no answer whatsoever? You just shut everyone up with just one simple question? Jesus had a way of doing that. And so why is this here again? I mean, we looked at this back in chapter 13, verses 10 to 17, healing on the Sabbath. Because of the last line there in chapter 13 when he said, I've wanted to gather your children together. I've wanted to gather you together as a hen wants to gather her little chicks. I've wanted to do that. But in your legalistic, man-made rules, you're blind. You don't know that I'm the mother hen. I'm trying to bring you in, love you, and include you in the covenant. But in your blindness to your legalistic way of life, you'll have nothing to do with it. Maybe some of you are are entrenched in your own legalisms. A legalism, just so you'll know, is the law of God says thou shalt not and thou shalt. We take a thou shalt not commit adultery. Adultery is a sin. It's any sexual union outside of a married relationship between a man and a woman. And you have to define even further in our day between someone born a man and born a woman. Isn't that sad? We didn't have to define that in years past, but I have to say that now, so I did. And yet today, people live in adulterous relationships. So if you tell somebody you can't live in adultery, is that a legalism? No, that's just preaching what God said. I didn't make up the law. God did. I'm telling you that so that you know it's sinful, so that you can repent of it and not incur the wrath of God. If you say, I notice you're drinking a beer, you know that anyone who drinks a beer is going to hell. Is that a legalism? It is a legalism because nowhere in the Bible does God forbid the drinking of an alcoholic beverage. Now, there are some who are alcoholics and should never touch an alcoholic beverage again. It's not a legalism, it's just common sense. But a legalism is a man-made rule. You can't play cards. Some people think playing cards is of the devil. Some people think watching TV is of the devil. If you think those things, then don't do them. But if you go around telling others that they can't do them, you're a legalist. You have set up a man-made rule to try to make yourself holy, make yourself feel better, and when you try to voice that on someone else, that's a legalism. It must be biblical to be of God. So the legalism here was, hey, God only wanted you to rest on the Sabbath. You've added all these laws, and Jesus is saying, and that has blinded you. It's what legalism does. It blinds us. We want to make these rules, do this, do this, do this, so we can judge everyone else without looking at ourselves. When we don't look at ourselves and see our own sin, we don't see a need for a Savior. If we can keep all of our man-made rules, we will look at ourselves at the end of the day and go, I really am a pretty good person. If whatever it is your, your moral code is that allows you to look at yourself at the end of the day and say, I'm a pretty good person, your moral code stinks. We go to bed every night with the sins of our life on our mind. Lord, I messed up again. Lord, I am not all that I can be. Make tomorrow a better day. Your last thought is of repenting of your sins and of receiving Christ's forgiveness once again going to bed, getting up, and doing it again the next day. Amen? They're blind. They can't do that. Jesus is saying, connecting back to the other context, I've wanted to bring you in, but you wouldn't. Now, this makes the dinner awfully awkward, don't you think? You ever ever made a dinner awkward? You said something, somebody asked something. You know, usually if someone doesn't know what I do, usually I'll play around a round of golf or, 
or I'll meet somebody at something and they'll say, hey, what is it that you do? And I know that the relationship is going to change at this point. Um, I was at an Astros game one time, and the guy and I, next to a total stranger, we're talking baseball, and he said, what is it that you do? And I went, oh, here we go. I'm a pastor. He came to church the next Sunday. Uh, never came back, but he did come next year. <laughs> so when you make things awkward and you tell somebody what you do and you, you bring up the gospel, you talk about Jesus in, in the context of you having a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, your typical meal, unless it's with a bunch of Christians at church, is going to go silent. So he's already made things awkward. The wife might be saying here, uh, if she's married, Jesus, uh, let's go. You've healed the man. You've proved your point. Let's go. Not Jesus. So he began speaking a parable, verse 7, to the invited guests. When he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. Now, when you have it in that society, in that society, it's a who you ate with said everything about who you are, who you were. You want to eat with the right people. You want to be seen with the right people. So back in those days, a, a, a day, we do it in our day, a table would be kind of a horse, horseshoe-shaped table. And the host would sit at the head of the horseshoe. You could set up tables in a square, but the, the host sat here at the front. And the most important one sat to his left and to his right. And on down to the end, the least important would sit down there. And how you, where you were in the pecking order said a lot to the other people around you. And so anyone who comes to one of these things, Jesus is watching them. Note that earlier, they were watching him. Well, he's watching them. And he sees into their hearts. So he says they began speaking, but he's invited guests. He noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. So in other words, imagine coming to a meal like that. You know everyone at the meal is trying to get next to the host. And so, you know, you, I imagine you're in a conversation, you got your drink here, and you're, you're sipping. Dinner hasn't been called yet, and you're kind of standing around, and you're kind of doing, you know, the table's back here. And someone comes to you, you're trying to make your way to the best place of honor right next. You want to go put your drink down, or your purse down, or something, and someone comes up, hey, Lance, good to see you. Hey, you know, you're kind of doing this, little Joe, kind of drifting over to the, to the place where while you're talking, because if you stand there and talk, this person, someone else is going to come in and take that place of honor. Yeah, fine. Yeah, hey, how you doing? Yeah. You really don't care. You ever been in that conversation? You know they're really, you just kind of, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. And you're trying, but you know when they're walking with you, they're trying to get that spot too. Uh, anyway, I don't know if that's what it was, but that's the way I imagine it was. Everyone there is trying to get this place of honor. So Jesus said to them in verse 8, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, which would be really the the, the most entertaining venue of of anyone's life, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot to do back then. To be invited to a big dinner or a wedding feast, a banquet of some sort, would be the highlight of one's week or month even. When you're invited to someone to sit a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man, and then in disgrace, you will proceed to occupy the last place. So imagine that. So you decide, hey, I'm Lance Waldy. I'm going to go up. I should sit next to the host because I'm, you know, Lance Waldy. And most of the world would go, who? <laughs> and so you sit up there, and someone comes in. Let's say, uh, I don't know, uh, pick your, your favorite celebrity. Maybe, maybe uh, the governor of Texas has been invited. You know, I'm sitting next to the host, and, and I've got my drink there. I got there first. I beat you, and... And, uh, you know, na-na-na-na-na, and uh, I'm sitting there, and uh, I'm sitting down, I'm eating, and I'm, I've got my chips and salsa, and I'm going at it. Excuse me, Lance. Uh, this is for Mr. Abbott, Greg Abbott. Uh, he's, oh, let me get my chips and my drink, you know, and, 
and my slobber all over my shirt that I've already got there, and I must be on the last row. Be a humiliating walk. And Jesus is simply saying, guys, when you get to these things, don't assume that you're something when you're nothing. Go occupy the last place. That way, if you are of any importance, the host will go down and say, hey, no, 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 you don't sit there. You come up here and sit. But again, how is this connected to the context? It's connected because Jesus is saying, how I have wanted to gather your children together. I have wanted to gather you Jews together. I told you that you have to strive to enter through the narrow gate. In your legalism, you won't have anything to do with it. In your your jockeying for position to get the right place to be seen by the right people at the right time, you're missing what God really loves. What does God really love? What does he say in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the meek or the gentle. Not the powerful. Not the ones that that, that, that go all out to get number one and climb the corporate ladder and be the, that's, that works in corporate America in the world all over from the time time began. Work hard, get to where you want. Jesus, however, loves humility and he rewards it. So he's just simply telling him some commonsensical advice. Verse 10, but when you're invited, go and recline at the last place. I find that interesting because in verse 30 of chapter 13, Jesus said, Behold, some who are last will be first. Some who are first will be last. In other words, you Jews who think you're so number one in God's eyes, you're going to get into the kingdom before anyone else. You are going to be last if you make it at all. Well, what might that mean to you and me? Well, I think I put it on the the bulletin here, on the outline of the bulletin, is, is ask yourself, Number two, striving to be somebody in this life. To be noticed, that's what a castaway from the kingdom is. The title is castaways from God's kingdom. The first four points are the answers to who they are. Number one, it's those who neglect grace for legalism. Number two, it's those striving to be somebody in this life to be noticed. Hard not to do that. We want to make more money. We want to do more things. We want to be distinguished from all people. Uh, You know these people. that They love to talk about themselves. You ever come away from a conversation uh, of one that you thought was going to be mutual and all you heard was this person talking? Uh, one time, a guy, we were having a luncheon after church and uh, someone said, hey, come over and meet this family. He's friends of ours. Come, great people. And for the next 45 minutes, I stood there and, talk, and I was, really I was trying to go from point A, which is over here at the table I was sitting at, to go refill my drink. And that's all. You know, just trying to make it back to my wife who was so lonely and needed me to be with her. <laughs> I stop at this table. 45 minutes later, this man tells me every degree he's done, every paper he's published, everything he's done. I've never met a more proud man in my life that day. To this day, I've not met a more proud man who needed me to know all these things about him. He came to the, that night we had a new member meeting and he had a, he had heard me say something, a sermon of, I had taken my son to see a Jason Bourne movie. I know, it's so horrific, and I'll never go to heaven for taking him to see a Jason Bourne movie. But he took issue with that. I heard you in a sermon today say that you took your son to see a Jason Bourne. Do you enjoy showing your son that kind of filth and violence? Uh, I thought it was a good flick, really. Uh, Seeing them all multiple times. Um, I didn't really have an answer. But this high and mighty guy who told me everything he did said, well, I will not come to a church where the preacher would take his son to see such a movie. Okay, thank you. 
Thank you. I was going to, to suggest that maybe this isn't the place for you, but you have done that. So entrenched with himself, always talking, never listening. You know people like this. Maybe it's you. Or it's that person that thinks that, I've met people through the years, they truly think they're the smartest people in the world. I, I met one guy who was a friend of mine for years, and he told me one time, he said, I'm the smartest person I know. He said this. And he was smart, very smart. He probably, he probably was right. He hadn't met anybody quite as smart. But it's hard to be in the presence of somebody who's smart, smarter than they think they're smarter than you. Um, and if you think you're smarter than them, it's hard for you to be in their presence. But either way, you're going... To, and, and when they come to this church, they think they've come to a church that they are now the gift for this church. They're the smartest one here. They listen to nothing. They are not teachable. They're easily offended, and they like to use that word, I was deeply offended, deeply offended, because no one's quite as smart as they are. They leave, they're offended. They care only about what they think, what they want. I'll go to the front of the table, I'll sit up there, everyone will look at me, and Jesus is saying, no. Verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, maybe you are smart, and you know that you're smart. There's nothing wrong with that if you know that you're smart. But give glory to God. He's the one that gave it to you. There's some people that are gifted with great intelligence. I'm not one of them. I know that because I've met smart people. I'm a hard worker. I'm diligent to know what I need to know and to know it well. But I've met smart people, and I'm not one of them. I'm humbled by them. Uh, But I'm really moved by by smart people who know that their gift is from God. All you got to do is hit your head on the wall and it goes away, couldn't it? For, not you just forget everything. Is that God can change what he's given you in a heartbeat. Give glory to God. And Jesus is saying, because you won't, I'm like that hen, I can't bring you in. You Jews think you're so number one, I can't bring you into my fold. You're too blind. At this point, if Jesus is married, the wife is going, let's go. Verse 12, he went on to say to the one who had invited him. <laughs> they haven't had anything to say. He's healed the guy. They're upset about that. They don't have anything to say. He's exposed all the people jockeying for position. And then he looks over at the host, this Pharisee, this high and mighty, legalistic, hypocritical Jew. He went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. What do you think Pharisee is going to think of that? He's highlighting me now? I brought this guy in. Jesus is just a peasant to them, a peasant carpenter from Nazareth. He's not among the elite. They've got him there to test him, to trap him. And he's, he has become, they wanted him to be their prey. He, however, has made them his theological prey. Don't you think that? Totally swap the tables on him. Turn those tables. Looking at that guy, hey, when you invite all these people, you see back then it was a social quid pro quo. Quid pro quo, a Latin phrase for this, for that. Uh, you invite me, I'll invite you. And that's what they did. This is the, the high and mighty, the socialites, the wealthy. And Jesus looks at him and says, hey, you're in the habit of inviting all your family and your friends, everybody you want to be here all the time, and you guys have this, this little look together and this little social quid pro quo. 
Jesus is saying, I want you to commit social suicide. Go out, verse 15, but when you, or 13, but when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Invite the people that can't invite you in return, that cannot give you what you want. That's why they're serving people. I'll give you this, you give me that. I read one guy, he said, you know, that's, for him, that's what uh, Christmas cards have become in his life. And he said, uh, he said you know, you, you send Christmas cards out. He said, but you send uh, Christmas cards out to the people who sent you Christmas cards. If they sent you a Christmas card with a nice gift card in it, you want to make sure you send them a Christmas card in return and give them a gift so that they'll do that again and you can get back and forth. But you wouldn't want to go out of your way to send them as Christmas cards and gift cards to people who can't return that favor. And yet that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Now, he's not saying you can no longer ever for the rest of your life have lunch with your family or your friends. In fact, Jesus did that. Eating with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. It's not that. It's just as a habit, why don't you on occasion invite the people that can't help you out? To where all of your socialite friends look out and say, he is eating. Look at who he's eating with. The crippled, the blind, the poor. What is he doing? That's ridiculous. That's social suicide. That's what Jesus would do. That's why he ate with such people. You do it. We have this model to mimic God. You want to be godly? Act like God. Isn't that what the word means? We like that word, don't we? Godly. Godly man. Godly woman. That must mean they act like God. That means they forgive. They show grace. They show mercy. They reach out to the people who can't help them in return. They give money to people that could never repay them. They help people and do favors to people without being able to ever be repaid. Be repaid. That's what God does, did and does. Verse 14, if you do this and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Well, the Pharisees believe We know the Pharisees absolutely believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. Sadducees only believed the Old Testament, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Some of you don't know the joke there. They only believed the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. And there's no resurrection there for them, and so they don't believe that. Uh, Pharisees do. Jesus said, he's talking to Pharisees, if you do what God would do, And commit your social suicide for the purpose of acting godly. When you are resurrected, your reward is in eternity. Now, you don't have to go there with me. If you know where it is, go back to the left. I'm just going to read from Daniel. Daniel chapter 12. And I'm already there. So, you don't have to get there if you don't want. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake... These to everlasting life, but to others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. The Old Testament teaches a resurrection. Everyone is going to be resurrected. Not just the righteous. The righteous who believe God, that's who the righteous are. Remember Abraham believed God and God counted that to him as righteousness? If you've read the account of Abraham, you don't see the greatest man in the world, but a real man. But he believed God. So the righteous are going to be resurrected. These are people that believed God. Notice I'm not saying believe in God. They just believed God. That's the simple thing. Here's God's word. 
I may not like or understand everything in it, but I believe God. What he says, I believe God. If he says he created the world in six days, I believe God. If he says that he chooses and predestines, I believe God. If he says a woman is not to teach or have authority over a man, I believe God. If he says there's one way of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, I believe God. I may not like it, I may not even understand it, but I believe God. That's what faith is. That's what saving faith is. That's what a righteous person is. They believe God. But the unrighteous who did not believe God, who kind of chopped up the Bible, if they had a Bible at all, and said, well, I like that, I don't like that, that one offends me, I don't like that, I'm going to complain about that, I don't like that, science says different on that, blah, blah, blah. They don't believe God. Jesus is a good guy, but I don't think he's the only way to heaven. There's other ways to heaven. You can be a good person, blah, 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 blah. In other words, you're telling God he's a liar. The unrighteous will also be resurrected, but to everlasting contempt. And so that's what Jesus says. I mean, it, to, to bring this up, to bring up the resurrection, and to say you're blessed if you will commit social suicide, he's essentially saying again, I'm like a hen trying to bring my chicks in. You'll have nothing to do with it though. You're so blind. You're, you're just this social quid pro quo. All you care about is how you look. That chief seat at the table with the right people so that people will think just right of me. You kids going through puberty and going through uh, the, the changes in your life and, and wanting to be cool. I mean, everyone does. You go through that. You want to be that way. Don't bother. Cool is overrated. Believe me, I'm the king of it. That is not funny. <laughs> cool people that were cool in junior high, high school, and college are the biggest losers I know now. It's overrated. Godliness. That's where it's at, folks. Sticking to your roots. Sticking to what's true. Sticking to what's right. Believing God. Now it's getting pretty tense. This is all the same meal. The wife at this point is going, we are leaving. There's no wife. If Jesus would have had a life coach, he would have said, I think you've made your point. Time to go. No, Jesus just keeps sticking it. But look to verse 15. In every tense situation, I say in every tense situation, in many tense situations, there's almost always somebody who wants to lighten the mood a little bit. You know, you're in a deep, dark discussion of, of uh, predestination. Somebody's always there to go, oh, I just believe that God loves me. Let's just move on. Or they want to quote John 3, 16 and move on with their life. Ah, oh, yeah, they just kind of bring it all. And Jesus is supposed to say, you're right. Verse 15. Then one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this and he said to him blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God in other words look Jesus we're all going to be there it's all going to be a blessed time Let, can we eat <laughs> Jesus could have said you're right this lunch is more than any of you bargained for up to this point let's just eat no not Jesus you brought him this far you take him all the way to the end I got another story to tell you he tells him Verse 16, a man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. At the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited. Note, two invitations. This, they had been invited to the big dinner. It would kind of a save the date. It's what we do today in modern weddings. You know, you get a card in the mail, save the date for a wedding that's coming, and then you get the invitation. Same type thing here. In fact, it's written in uh, the Midrash that uh, the Jews only accepted invitations when there were two. 
This was kind of an important thing. So in other words, a guy's going to have a big dinner. He sends it out. Look, friends, I'm going to be cooking a dinner. Put the date on your calendar, uh, and I'll let you know the roundabout time when it's ready. So he had invited many, verse 17, and at the dinner hour he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The Jews listening to this would have understood verses 16 and 17 quite well. But if you RSVP the first invitation, it's absolutely unheard of that you don't take the second invitation. We'll be there. But when the second invitation comes out, if you say no, that's unheard of. It's absurd. It wouldn't have happened in that day. And yet that's what everyone does here. Verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a piece of land and I need to go out and take a look at it. Please consider me excused. Which is strange, you know, because land doesn't go anywhere. It's not going anywhere. The land is there and would he have purchased it without ever looking at it in the first place? This is what we call a lame excuse. And it's an excuse given to, for, by someone who really just doesn't want to go. Another one said, verse 19, I've bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Well, this is a guy, five, you haven't tried them out? You bought five yoke, and you haven't tried them out yet? Are those oxen going anywhere? I've got to try them out, tell them. I, I would use, applicationally, the first excuse is, is the guy that, look, I've got things to do that are more, more fun than this, things I would rather do. I'm not interested in your invitation, Jesus, to come to your feast. You see, the feast here is the feast at the resurrection. It's what we call the wedding feast. It's depicted in in Revelation 19 at the second coming of Christ, this feast. The first invitation went out to the Jews. The Jews were given the invitation to believe, the Abrahamic covenant. Have the faith of Abraham, who believed God and God credit to him as righteousness. Believe. Believe in the promises that God has given in the Old Testament. Believe in the prophecies given Believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Believe. In the Old Testament, those Jews did. We believe what God has said. Second invitation went out when the Messiah came, and it was essentially the kingdom of God has arrived. And they all said, nope, got other things to do. That's what's going on here. So the next one, I bought a five yoke of oxen. I've got to go out and try them out. This is the guy that now i got work to do. I'm not coming to church I'm not going to get involved in any church activities. I'm not going to, to get into your little Christian culture. Um, I've got leisurely things to do. I've got work to do. That's the first two excuses. The only one that we might be able to sympathize with at all is in one in verse 20. And the other one said, I've married a wife. I mean, do we even need to read anything else? <laughs> Maybe the first invitation he got, he was single. Yeah, I'll go. I've got nothing else to do. But between the first invitation and the second invitation, maybe he got married. I've got a wife. I married a wife, and for that reason, I cannot come. What sense does that make? I'm married now. I can't come eat at your party. Uh, maybe it's a way of saying the wife really doesn't like you. I'm not coming. She doesn't want... I mean, if you're married, yeah, blame the wife every time. I mean, I see others today. They have dogs. You know, it's, it's easy to blame the dogs. Oh, we got to go. Look at the time. We got to go feed the dogs. Um, some of you have been using that for years. I just exposed you. <laughs> you know, the Old Testament gives a, a um, provision for a newlywed man, if you've been married less than a year, to not fight in, in battles, um, and not travel long distances, because the first year of marriage is to be with his wife 
but there's nothing in there that says, thou shalt now, no longer after being married, go to a dinner party. But this is his excuse, and that's the excuse people make today. Oh, my family. We don't, we don't have time for that. We got family. We're not going to take Sunday to go worship. We got family. We got a second home we need to go to. We got a boat. We got a lake to live, to play on. That's our day off. That's what we do. It's our family. Family. People love that word family. Every time you use it, you're just showing who your idol is. Your family. Families are idols to people today. They put them in front of everything. My children mean everything to me. Your children are people God gave to you. He could take them away just as quickly as he gave them. And he often does. God first. God first. Let those kids that you think are so important, let them see a man. You men say, we're going to church to worship. Let them see a man while they sit with you in the third grade and you wonder, why do we make third graders come into this auditorium? To watch you open your Bible. To sing the songs and watch their dad and their mom sing. And sit together. And worship together. And make them sit still. I know they don't get it. I know they're not getting it. I know they're sitting there going, Daddy, I'm thirsty. And by the way, no kid gets thirsty. If you're buying into the, the lie that your kid is thirsty... I'm sorry, this doesn't make anyone parched. They're doing it because they want to get out. If you're not smart enough to know the kid just wants to get up and get out, get smart. (laughs) And when you lead your kid out to get a drink, there's other kids that go, hey, wait a minute. Hey, Dad, I'm thirsty. Don't do it. They're not getting thirsty, and if they are, I promise you, they're not going to die between the time I am at that point and when we finally let out probably 25 minutes later. We don't need you getting up, getting those kids a drink. It's just an excuse. Or my kids, can, you know, my kids this, my kids this, my wife that. Don't. These are excuses. The invitation has gone out. The invitation, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The way is narrow. Strive to enter it. Repent of your sins. It's not supposed to be easy. You don't wake up on Sunday morning and say, honey, you want to go to church today? Yeah, it's too nice a day. I'm a little tired. We were up late last night. No, that conversation, listen to me, should never be had. Make the decision now so that you don't have to make it on Sunday morning. We're going to church. Why are we going to church, Dad? Because we're going to church. I made that commitment with your mama X amount of years ago, and that's what we do on Sundays. Do you think kids need to see that today? What will the generation be like in 10, 15 years? This community, Fairfield community where I live, they used to have some respect at the athletic center for Sundays and Wednesdays. Even Wednesdays, they didn't have practice back in the early 2000s. There was no practice sessions for baseball, football, soccer, or what have you in Fairfield out of respect for the churches that met on Wednesday nights. So we started meeting on Wednesday nights. We were meeting on Tuesday. We moved it to Wednesday. And if certainly they weren't touching Sunday, today, do you think there's any respect for either Wednesday or Sunday? No. Tell your kids, this is what we do. We don't play. We worship We worship. That is a deep, makes a deep impression on children. That is how you lead your family, not by foregoing it. Ah, my family, this and that. Ah, I've got too much leisure to do. Got too much work to do. Verse 21, the slave came back, reported to his master. They're not coming. No one's coming. The Jews hearing this story would have been thinking, that never happens. And yet, It is happening to them. Note that the head of the household became angry. Well, the head of the household, and this is God, he's the one that sent out the invitation, became angry. This shows you that God does not take lightly 
to those who make excuses and say no to him. He doesn't just blow it off. Eh, no big deal. I'm sovereign. I get over it. God himself becomes angry. Angry at offering people eternal life. Offering them free invitation to come to a meal. He's prepared. And it's not just a meal at the end of time. At the second coming, I should say. It's not just a great feast. It's about eternal joy and enjoyment. That feast will never end. And even for those of you who are not foodies, it's still going to be good to you. He became angry and he said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. Just like Jesus had told the the Pharisee to do. So in other words, what, what the parable is saying is, Jews, you were invited first. I chose Abraham. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob birthed the 12 tribes of Israel. The tribes of Israel that became like the sand of the sea and the, and the stars of the sky. Just like I promised Abraham. That's what I did. They're invited. The kingdom of God is theirs. If they will believe. If they will believe me like Abraham. Are all the Jews saved in one big circle of people? All y'all? No. Just y'all in the middle. Just y'all, not all y'all. Write that down. Just y'all, not all y'all. That's funny. Come on. It's in South Texas. It's what we say. Go invite these crippled lame. So who is that? So if the Jews said no, the crippled, blind, and the lame, bring those in. Those are the people, really what fits in the Old Testament there are the, uh, God told Aaron, who was the high priest, he said, any of your descendants who, are, uh, who have some physical defect, they are not to serve me as priests. And there are people throughout the Old Testament that are not just part of the Levitical line or Aaron's lineage. They are part of a, a group of people that, that uh, are left outside of the worship communities if they have an oozing sore or they're sick in some way. They're to be left out. Jesus is saying, no, go bring them in. If the people I invited to the first invitation weren't coming, go and get those who would not be invited. So they do. Crippled, blind, and lame. Imagine a crippled person coming into this meal. A blind person. They can't even see it. You're showing them, here, sit here, let me show you, let me put you down at the table. They can't even see the sumptuous feast that's been prepared. Is that not God's grace? Taking the blind, lame, the losers like you and me, full of sin outside of the covenant of Abraham? Bring them in. Verse 22, the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done. And there's still room. The master said to the slave, go out to the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in. So that my house may be filled. In other words, go out to the Gentiles. Not just to the Jews who were forbidden into the worship center. Go get the Gentiles. That's you and me. Bring them into the feast. Verse 24, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my dinner. (laughs) There's no way that salvation is universal to the Jewish people who have rejected Jesus. That's the second invitation. They said yes to the first. They said no to the second. It's absurd. And you know when he says here, go out into the highways along the villages, compel them. That means, that word compel means force them. You know, in the Inquisition, that's what it was, uh, that's what it was interpreted. Spanish Inquisition, force them into Christianity or kill them after you torture them. No, it's not to force people to come into God's kingdom, per se. It's about compelling them as trying to convince people the master actually has a place for you at his table. 
Did you need some convincing about that? Because you knew what kind of a wretched sinner you were when you came to know Christ? It's even for you. You wretched sinner. You know, again, I say that to you because there are many people here in this, this auditorium, you are very moral people. You don't commit horrible, heinous sins. And so you take offense to me calling you a wretched sinner. What you aren't committing, you're thinking. It's that mind, it's that distance between your ears where that sin is there and you know what you're capable of. And the more you grow, listen to me when I say this, the more you grow in your faith, the more exposed your mind becomes to yourself. The more you understand how sinful you really are. How selfish you are in your marriage and your friendships. How important it really is to you to be noticed. I'll tell you, I would love to be a famous preacher. In my flesh, I would love to be famous. I'd love to be the next John MacArthur or Chuck Swindoll. I'd love to have a church that's thousands upon thousands of people. Lance Waldy, there he is. I'd love for a, a movie to be made about me. Like the Essential Church, by the way, go see it. You must. It's awesome. The Essential Church. How many times, how many movies on this planet can a preacher say, go see that one? If it's not chariots of fire. The Essential Church, go see it. Yeah, in my flesh I'd like that, but I think, no, 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 no. I'm not going to manipulate anything. If God wants me to be that way, he'll make it that way. I'm not going to go put out everything I do on YouTube. I'm not going to go out and put everything out online and put my face out there. Who wants to see me? I'm perfectly fine being a nobody, simply being faithful. That's what I want. That's how I sleep at night. If God wants to make me famous, and I hope he doesn't, I couldn't handle that. I'm not, I have no energy for that. But maybe you want what God hasn't provided. You want something more than what God has given you. Better. Better for you. The Jews did not want what God had for them. We already like who we are, God. We don't want this Messiah. We don't like this Messiah. And so God tells him, I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. The same parable is given in Matthew's gospel in Matthew 24, and he closes it in verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called to believe, but few are chosen to actually believe. It's that y'all, all y'all, the remnant will be saved. Though, God says in Isaiah, though the number of the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, only the remnant will be saved. So you have to determine, what is your faith? What is your faith? Do you think that, well, I grew up in the Baptist church, Methodist church, Presbyterian church. I was baptized. This was my preacher. My mom was this woman. She prayed for me. I'm a good person. I got baptized. In fact, I was baptized as an infant. And then later on, I got baptized in the Baptist church. I've got two baptisms under my belt. I give my 10%. One time, I even gave 11%. I do good deeds. I'm this. I'm that. Try telling all of that to God. I mean, you use the first person pronoun in God's presence, I think you're in trouble. What should, what reason do I have to let you into my kingdom, God might say? Well, I, uh, you lose. What and why should I let you into my kingdom? You are a gracious God. You became man. You lived my life. You lived the perfect life. I'm imperfect. You died on the cross 
to suffer for the sins of those who believe in you. I am one of those who believe in you. Come into my kingdom, servant. Well done, good and faithful one. What is it that God is saying to you? Holding out his arms like a mother hen wanting to bring her chicks in, protect them under her wings. But you would have nothing of it. You're entrenched in your legalism. You're entrenched in your I-me world. You're not going to give up what you do. This is what I do. God's going to have to get over it. You don't act godly. You act manly. You got the invitation you think you said yes to. You reject the Messiah. He is not your Lord. What is the only answer? You're going to be that person knocking on the door at the kingdom. That Jesus paints that picture in chapter 13. Lord, Lord, what about us? And what does he say? From behind the door, from behind the closed door, I don't know you. Go away from me, you doers of wickedness. But I was a good person. You rejected the invitation. You chose you over me. Which one is you? Which one are you? Let's pray. Lord, open our hearts and our eyes, the spiritual part of us, to see the truth. Only you can do that. Prick the hearts of, of those who have rejected you for them. Prick the hearts of those of us who have given our lives to you and yet who still hold on to us. We still hold on to things. Our little pet sins expose them, cut them out of us. Do surgery on us and cut out those live portions of us that still serve us. May we live to bring glory and honor to you and to you alone. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. May the Lord God Almighty bless you, my friends, and keep you. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 